again, people laughed at me and they barked when I went into a courtroom. They are not human beings and putting them on the same legal standing as a human being, that's, uh, that's insanity. I think uh, this is the kind of thing that nations as wealthy and uh, indulged as the United States, uh, it's the kind of thing we talk about, it's the kind of thing we have time to do. Uh, it's almost uh, a sad kind of contradiction that we've been watching the kind of things we've been watching out of Turkey. We're sitting here today talking about whether we have happy monkeys. These animals are extraordinarily cognitively complex. They have their own cultures. They're self-conscious, autonomous, and self-determining. They have a theory of mind so that they not only know that they have a mind, but they know others have a mind. They understand that they're individuals who existed yesterday and will exist tomorrow. Because when you imprison a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee understands that tomorrow he's going to be in prison. And as far as he knows, it's not going to end. Welcome to the Nomos Phone Podcast. My name is Maria Nilsen. I am a student of global law at Silbig University. And together with my colleague, Lilia Nguyen, I'll be a host in this episode dealing with the somewhat contentious subject of animal rights. Have you ever wondered why humans have legal personhood and rights? And since humans enjoy the benefit of this legal concept, why is your golden retriever considered a legal thing that bears no rights? And what about the millions of animals who are raised for slaughter every year? Is it just part of the inevitable natural order of the world that they are treated as products for human consumption? Or is it time that we have a serious discussion about the emotional makeup, intelligence, and legal standing of these beings? Some people don't like to think about these questions, and some people just never considered where the sausage came from and what kind of conditions the calf it used to be part of had before he was butchered. Then again, some people think about it a lot. A lot. And even more people are open to learn more about the lives of farm animals and how we can improve it. Because people love animals. They love animals, and yet they accept the um, unparalleled suffering of millions of calves and pigs in farms and slaughterhouses, hundreds of chimpanzees in test laboratories, and elephants in circuses. There are different reasons for this paradoxical behavior. The most oft-mentioned probably being that the task of challenging this human-non-human animal relationship seems impossible. It is not impossible. In fact, several legal organizations have long had it as their goal to attain rights for some animals with higher cognitive abilities, such as chimpanzees and elephants. And this is only considering the West. In the Global South, jurisdictions in Asia and Latin America have already recognized some animals as legal persons. This podcast has two parts. Part 1 aims to have a meaningful discussion about the EU legal framework for farm animals and critically assess what it is doing right and where it is lacking. The second part will dissect the concept of legal personhood. What does it mean to have legal personhood? Why is it so crucial that all humans have it? And why do other animals not have it? And should they? You can find a myriad of online videos documenting gross abuse of pigs, cows, calves and chicks inside slaughterhouses and farms. But as of yet, there is no compiled report indicating the exact number of non-compliance with the EU regulation. Many animal protection associations deploy undercover agents in order to capture footage that exposes the cruelty committed by employees, 
but due to lack of proper monitoring on a national level, it is difficult to say how frequently they occur. One case which received a lot of media attention was the tilled pig slaughterhouse scandal. Animal Rights, a Dutch foundation with a Belgian non-profit department, reveals shocking footage of severe animal cruelty. The video showed how pigs were frequently beaten, kicked and brutally dragged by their ears or by a chain attached to their feet. The latter was necessary in cases where the pig's legs were broken and thus had lost the ability to walk. Other footage includes pigs having their throat cut while still conscious or being drowned in a steaming bath of 60 to 70 degrees, which originally had the function of burning away the hairs of pig corpses. Eurogroup for Animals, an EU platform on animal welfare member, has documented severe abuse cases in countries such as Denmark, Italy, Spain and Finland. The perpetrators included suppliers of renowned cured ham consortiums. While making this podcast, yet another case emerged from a Dutch slaughterhouse where pigs were being boiled alive. So what have lawmakers done to address this gruesome reality of the meat industry? The enforcement of animal welfare legislation falls within the principle of subsidiarity, which means that a member state are responsible for the day-to-day enforcement through their national legislation and control activities, as well as the transposition of directives into national legislation and the implementation of EU rules at a national level. The legislation is designed to cover all stages of a farm animal's life, whilst on the farm, during transport and at the time of killing. The Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union recognizes animals as sentient beings, and all animals under human control enjoys five fundamental freedoms. Freedom from hunger and thirst, freedom from discomfort, freedom from pain, injury and disease, freedom to express normal behavior, freedom from fear and distress. The most general directive concerning the protection of animals kept for farming purposes is Council Directive 9858. The directive says that member states shall ensure that the conditions under which animals are bred and kept has regard to their species and physiological and ethological needs, in accordance with scientific knowledge. What the EU seemingly has succeeded in is effectively prohibiting the most gruesome practices in the farming industry. These include veal crates, barren battery cages and sow gestation crates. Although, regrettably, gestation crates can still be used during the first month of pregnancy. There is no official definition of veal and gestation crates, but animal welfare campaigners traditionally define it as a crate so narrow that the calf or sow cannot even turn around. These methods are still used elsewhere in the world, so if you eat meat imported from non-EU countries, it could still stem from animals who have been subjected to these conditions, although officially the exporters must show a certificate that the animals have received treatment at least equivalent to that granted to animals in the EU. The specific directive on calves prohibits veal crates in their traditional form, but allows for calves to be kept in sole confinement until they are eight weeks old. For calves kept in groups, the unobstructed space allowance available for each calf shall be at least 1.5 square meters for each calf weighing less than 150 kilograms and at least 1.7 for a calf weighing between 150 and 220 kilos. Most calves will not have any floor bedding after they have reached two weeks of age. 
Unfortunately, there are no specific EU rules for cattle or dairy cows. In many modern dairy farms, a milk cow usually lives for about five years before being slaughtered. During these five years, she is almost constantly pregnant and is fertilized within 60 to 120 days after giving birth to preserve maximum milk production. Her calves are separated from her shortly after birth. Few dairy cows are ever on grass. Many pigs are kept on concrete slatted floors with no straw bedding and generally have access to even less space per pig than cows do. However, the legislation also says that pigs must have permanent access to a sufficient quantity of material to enable proper investigation and manipulation activities. This is very loosely implemented, and most farmers who choose to comply simply place toys such as chains, chewing sticks, or a ball inside the pig's confinements. Tail docking, tooth clipping, and tooth grinding are illegal, but are still widespread practices. In many EU countries, although not in the UK and Ireland, pigs are routinely castrated without anesthesia or pain relief. Piglets can be removed from their mothers after 28 days of suckling. At the slaughterhouse, stunning is mandatory for both pigs and calves. However, slaughterhouses can derogate from this rule by claiming religious freedom, which the EU has judged, to include the killing of unstunned animals. Since labeling is not mandatory and sometimes ambiguous, it is hard for consumers to know whether their meat was stunned prior to, for example, being slaughtered using the halal method. These minimum standards arguably do not satisfy the five freedom principles and they are regularly breached without any repercussions for the slaughterhouse or the farm. We went to the European Parliament to find out more about these rules and why they are breached so often and what lawmakers are doing to address these issues. We were lucky enough to interview Mr. Pascal Durand, a French MEP engaged in the intergroup on the welfare and conservation of animals. Mr. Durand explained the difficulties regarding the proper implementation of the directives. He also elaborated on his own mission as an MEP and the role of the intergroup. The intergroup provides updates and background information on animal-related issues, which are being discussed within the institutions, and raises awareness about pressing conservation issues on a global level. The priority for the group is to challenge the EU competences as well and try to gain as many votes as we can for the directives to be properly implemented. Along with all the intergroup's work, we aim to establish a commission to investigate alleged contraventions and maladministration in the application of the Council regulation on the protection of animals during transport. It is very difficult to prove that EU countries are abiding the rules where there is no EU police that can objectively check it and a commission would definitely help create more transparency. Does the EU punish member states that do not live up to their obligations? When it comes to the general act of punishing a country, the union gives notice to the country and a chance to justify themselves. If there is a non-compliance with the directives, the punishment consists of giving them fines or blocking the EU aid and so on. The Union cannot punish the slaughterhouse directly. It can only demand France, for instance, to sanction or punish a slaughterhouse. France sanctions by administrative closures of abattoirs. 
On its own website on animal welfare, the EU has stated that it would develop a plan to improve welfare practices after evaluating the previous one, which ended in 2015. We noticed that there is no such plan nor any reports from member states since 2015. Why is that? The parliament simply does not want it since the previous plan was not even evaluated. They set out plans for five years, but before proceeding to the next one, they need to analyze and evaluate what happened, what worked and what did not. And unfortunately, they are not able to achieve the goals. They expect the commission to make a debriefing precisely explaining what happened with the previous objectives and where are they standing now. Not having the proper report, it is difficult to envision the next step. Thus, the parliament is in a situation in between. The EU had drafted texts that are respected by some member states. Now, they need to push to ensure that all texts are applied properly. But why are these texts struggling to move forward? It is partly because of the extremely powerful lobbies, particularly in financial matters since farming is very important in Europe. It brings a lot of money. That is why large groups do not want to spend money on transportation and they do not care how the animal is treated. What counts is the profit. As previously emphasized, the majority of the abattoirs inside the EU comply with regulations. During the course of making this podcast, we were lucky enough to interview the staff of the Dutch-owned ESA abattoir. In addition to the interview, ESA kindly allowed us a tour of their facilities. It all looks similar to our expectations. The larich areas seem chaotic, with calves mooing loudly and mounting each other inside their cramped cages. They were stunned one by one inside an individual cage using air pressure and thereafter dropped on a table where an employee checked for eye reflexes. Once they were deemed unconscious, they were hoisted up by one leg to have their throat cut. We now have the pleasure of introducing Richard Funk, the operational manager of the ESA, and Marjolaine Devert, a quality assessment employee and animal welfare officer. Our first question uh, is, what are the most important measures you have implemented in your slaughterhouse to ensure your calves' welfare prior and during slaughter? When, when we started here, when I started here four years ago, uh, animal welfare was, was important. But I think our last years, we, together with the quality department, uh, uh, found out some items that we would like to change. That, for example, we uh, give up some parts of the leverage area in order to make a carousel. Mm -hmm. But this carousel, this, uh, this is stimulating for the cost because you, it's more or less their, uh, their natural behavior to, uh, to move in groups. And before we had a little box, uh, and to get them out of the box, uh, there was a lot of effort necessary to get them out of this this little boxes mm -hmm. uh, we are busy with level of uh, of, uh, of stimuli in the in the leverage area for example sound is a, is a big one mm -hmm. uh, these metal fences they uh, when they close they make a lot of noise and uh, so Marjolein and uh, Roy uh, which are our uh, animal welfare team for let's say uh, they have uh, made a presentation of all the problems more or less we encounter regarding uh, animal welfare and some of them we enhanced right now 
and some of them we are uh, looking into to see if that's the way we are want to develop uh, in the in the few in the in years to come. The intention is to get it to do it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, hundred percent right is difficult. But yeah, we I know think that's important to say that it's not always hundred percent right. I told her mm. about. Um, some animals, when uh, the the stunner wants to shoot, they turn their head or yeah. something. Yeah, that's something that that happens. Mm -hmm. And um, some things can yeah. go yeah. All wrong, but if you know and have the right people to take action yeah, directly action. in yeah. this case, then um, yeah, yeah, then you're all professional, and that's yeah, what professional. we that's mm -hmm. the that's the level we want to work on. First, I wanted to ask you if you have heard about uh, the scandal that happened in the Tilt yeah. Slaughterhouse. Yeah, yeah I saw the yes. images also, the yeah. films, little films on YouTube, etc. Okay. Um, so, what do you feel as a person who invests so much of your time, uh, professional time also, in the meat industry, when you learn of these type of cases? Yeah, I think it's horrible. It's uh, disgusting to, to see how... Uh, you can look at it at different levels. Eh? When I see it as a person, I, I, I was disgusted to mm. see it because you do not treat animals like that. Uh, when you look at the professional, you, you see uh, it's in a when there is a right culture in this company, it's not necessary to treat animals in that way. That's mm. it's just a culture that people copying each other uh, and doing the same thing, and nobody steps up and says, "Okay, stop this. Yeah, I don't want this," and uh, correct them. And so uh, I see uh, in, a no in, a, in when you are a serious uh, company, you can treat animals good, even if it's if your work is stressful or you have to make production or a lot of volume, etc. Still, there is in this split second you can decide to hit uh, a pig or not hit a pig. That's you can do that on your own. But these people just copying the standards for uh, so prob so uh, probably this was the standard that you can mistreat the animals. So uh, and on that level. Uh, so as a person I was uh, disgusted, but also as a professional. The other part is that uh, when you work with, with people, uh, when you work, uh, for example, in a hospital, uh, tens of thousands of patients comes, and there also things can go wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you focus on things that can go wrong and you stay there for a long time, it's easy to make a film of 10 minutes all the things that people falling out of their bed of having a medicine that was not for them but for the neighbor mm -hmm. it's easy to to show something that's not good mm -hmm. and so that's the other part of the of looking at these images uh, when you see all the the, the products coming by yeah the 100 percent uh miss failure of 100 percent uh, always good and no miss failure zero percent that's that's not possible okay. so it also goes into the next question about whether you think that these incidents are caused just by workers acting without authority on their own behalf or if it's something that also has to do with the environment of the slaughterhouse if the slaughterhouse management has in any way would would have to have encouraged this. I do not think it was only the workers. Mm -hmm. I uh, watched it again yesterday and um, you also saw these, um, I think yeah, they were um, uh, stunned with uh, gas Mm. And yeah. um, you saw a lot of pigs. They were um, they were recovering. Yeah, yeah, they were still conscious while being. Yeah, uh, and and they were uh, going into this uh, this water. And yeah, I do not think that's only a worker thing, but also the whole process was not uh, not okay.
Um, lastly, are, is there anything that you haven't yet mentioned uh, that you would like people to know about your work? Uh, no, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I think we we know, uh, we understand that we kill an animal to transfer it to food. And uh, in fact, some people oppose to that, I, 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 I can understand. The fact is that it's been done since people are working, uh, working on this earth. Eh? We are uh, killing animals in order to feed ourselves. And but what I always tell myself: Can you uh, tell on uh, birthday parties uh, when you're there what you do? And that I don't have anything to say that is not correct. So uh, I'm not ashamed of what I do. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's how I look at how I want this process to be done here at Asia. Most listeners will probably agree with Mr. Vonk that it is the natural way of life that humans consume meat, and they are arguably right. Some will also be of the opinion that the calves who were slaughtered at ESA's abattoir has lived much more comfortable lives than their wild cousins and ancestors. In the wild, cows and bulls would spend their days searching for sustenance and shelter, and they were constantly threatened by predators and parasites. In contrast, humans provide food and shelter to domesticated calves, and s as well as protection against natural threats. True, most calves will sooner or later find themselves in a slaughterhouse, yet does that make their fate any worse than that of wild bulls? The tragedy, as we see it, lies in the dynamic between homocentric, economically beneficial production lines and the ancient sensory and emotional makeup of cows, pigs and other domesticated animals. As historian and philosopher Yuval Noah Harari describes in his book Sapiens, cows, pigs and humans alike still follow ancient genetic decrees that might be useless and even counterproductive in their present-day environments, but that made good evolutionary sense 70,000 years ago. Ancient wild cows had to know how to form close relations with other cows and bulls, or else they could not survive and reproduce. To learn the necessary skills, evolution implanted in calves, as in the young of all other social mammals, a strong desire to play, and it's implanted in them an even stronger desire to bond with their mothers, whose milk and care were essential for survival. Ancient boars equally had to communicate and cooperate with their fellow boars, forming complex groups dominated by old and experienced matriarchs. Consequently, wild boars, and even more so wild sows, became highly intelligent social animals characterized by a lively curiosity and strong urges to play, socialize, wander about, and explore their surroundings. Like wild boars, domesticated pigs communicate using a rich variety of vocal signals. Mother sows recognize the unique squeaks of their piglets, whereas two-day-old piglets already differentiate their mother's calls from those of other sows. The intelligence level of domesticated pigs was demonstrated by Professor Stanley Curtis at the Pennsylvania State University, who succeeded in training two pigs to control a joystick with their snouts, and found that the pigs soon rivaled even primates in learning and playing simple computer games. On the 7th of July 2012, leading experts in neurobiology and the cognitive sciences gathered at the University of Cambridge and signed the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness, which says that Convergent evidence indicates that non-human animals have neuroanatomical, neurochemical, and neurophysiological substrates of conscious states along with the capacity to exhibit intentional behaviors. 
Consequently, the weight of evidence indicates that humans are not unique in possessing the neurological substrates that generate consciousness. Non-human animals, including all mammals and birds, and many other creatures, including octopuses, also possess these neurological substrates. You might find yourself in a situation in the future where you would want to bring a case against a person or a state for abusing an animal. However, if you want to do this before an EU court, it is quasi impossible. This is because of the strict legal standing requirements on one hand and the system demand that EU law should be enforced in the first instance by a national court. In a national court, standing for persons will most likely be related to property rights or else a person must prove that they have a legal interest in the suffering the animal has endured. For NGOs, it is easier because standing is linked to the statutory objective of an organization. If these statutory objectives concern the protection of a certain type of animal, they can be awarded legal standing. It is quite a recent development. For instance, in Belgium up until 2013, the Court of Cassation only allowed NGOs to have standing to protect their own legal interest. The development is partly due to influence from EU law and international law that requires broad access to justice for environmental organizations. EU member states also have their own national animal welfare law, which protects domesticated animals. In the UK, for example, the 2006 Animal Welfare Act established a duty of care for animal owners, and a person who is found to have violated this duty of care can incur a fine or even jail time. Any person can report a case to the local authorities who will then initiate court proceedings. But is this really all we can do to protect animals? How would the abuse cases be different if the animals concerned had legal personhood? We interviewed Jennifer de Bull, who is an attorney with expertise in international and European wildlife law and a PhD researcher at Tilburg University to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Can you first tell me what the difference is between animal welfare and animal rights? Animal welfare is concerned with the well-being of animals under human control. And animal rights is a set of ideas that aim to elevate and raise the moral status of animals beyond their status, their current status as property. Do you believe that all or some animals should have rights and why? So the question of whether you're going to elevate eh, the moral status of animals is uh, quintessentially an, an ethical question. And um, animal uh, philosophers, so they aim to understand reality through a, a rational perspective. They have provided moral frameworks to determine whether animals um, are worthy of moral concern or not. And they use and apply criteria such as sentience, intelligence, responsibility, the ability to live up to obligations, to distinguish or compare the human-animal relationship. Um, but if you're going to look in terms of desired outcomes, if, you, if, you're, if, if it is your aim to alleviate animal suffering, granting them rights will undeniably contribute to that objective. So from a historical perspective, humans that had a property status their well-being dramatically and drastically improved after they became the bearers of rights. Having legal personhood entails that a being or a thing, like a corporation, can become the bearer of an infinite amount of rights, perhaps most importantly, the private right of action. 
It enables you to sue on behalf of yourself and assert that your legal interest has been violated. Anyone or anything that does not have legal personhood has to go to the court via a natural or legal person. As previously mentioned, there exists a few ways that this can come about. But common to all is that the interest of the animal or the legal thing does not have any weight as a legal argument. Personhood, in the Western sense of the word, has its origins in the ancient Greek philosophy and especially Aristotle's deliberations on man as a rational agent. It was adopted into Roman law where Gaius made its first proper distinction between persons and things. Following the Roman law revival, development continued with jurists such as Hugo Grotius. The societal changes of the Enlightenment and John Locke's liberalism allowed for the modern concept of personhood to emerge. Finally, in the 1840s, Friedrich Karl von Savigny produced today's definition of the legal person as a subject of rights and duties. Historically, not all humans have enjoyed the benefits of this legal concept. African slaves, Native Americans, women and children had no legal personhood in the eyes of Europeans up until a number of landmark lawsuits challenged the legal and social order of the time. Legal personhood is thus reactive to developments in society and scientific knowledge. On the 16th of February 2017, the European Parliament passed a resolution recommending legal personhood for artificial intelligences. Is it time that they make the same recommendation for all or some animals? However, if animals were to gain rights, they still cannot sue on behalf of themselves. They can't go to a court and file a complaint. They can't even say that they won't help. So humans still have to identify that animals are suffering and then provide a representation. And it is all dependent on how humans interpret the communication that they have received from the animals. So will it not be very similar the type of guardianship that humans will provide animals with rights and the type of guardianship that NGOs already provide animals without rights. It's true that it's, it's, um, humans would materially have to act uh, on behalf of uh, the animal. But it's the idea that you can only be protected if you're on somewhere on the priority list of an NGO or whatever, mm-hmm. or if you can protect it on behalf of yourself by anyone or anything who sees it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're just not capable. Yes, and, and, and you can also think from a more pragmatic point of view. We have the legal system as we have. Does it suffice in achieving the objectives it says to be achieved? Mm-hmm. And what are ways to improve the currents? If, you're, if you aim to improve things, do additional measures have to be taken? Because things won't be different if you don't take different actions. Currently, the main instrument used by legal organizations, such as the Non-Human Rights Project, to obtain legal standing for animals is the habeas corpus writ, which was famously used in the 1772 Somerset case to free an English slave. Do you not think it's inappropriate to use such a writ in the context of encaged animals? Appropriateness to me, you can correct me if you don't agree, um, equates to conformity. And uh, conformity is the requirement that you behave according to the usual standards that exists uh, in society. And of course, comparing animals to humans from that perspective is, um, is inappropriate. It's deemed inappropriate. And um, it makes most people um, feel uncomfortable because we, of course, have this legal system where we have a strict distinction uh, between animals and uh, humans. Uh, feel, uh, whether being inappropriate is also morally right or wrong 
It's a different question. And you already see that the last 10, 20 years, society has become more uh, open towards uh, recognizing animals' importance. To me, it's on two lines. It's partly thinking and understanding um, um, that we also are animals, uh, considering evolution theory, theory that it's a matter of, of gradation, not of kind. But and, and also a maybe a growing um, awareness, feelings um, of compassion um, that go beyond our own species, but also compromise. Because I'm not now not only talking about people who care about animals, but also people who care about nature and our planet as a whole. So I also believe that if you can encompass um, your, your scope of concern, of compassion for things that are not necessarily like you, um, you'll, you'll also find um, appropriateness or inappropriateness um, less troubling or maybe we can move from to a new standard where exactly this line of thinking where we do um, compare animals and humans isn't deemed inappropriate anymore but humans have rights and personhood but many would argue that this is part of a social contract where it also follows that they have certain obligations how can you get delegate rights to animals who cannot have the same type of obligations so the main argument that has been put forward against uh, the ID that uh, being able uh, to live up to obligations is the criterion um, to determine whether you can have rights or not is actually that any criteria, whether it's responsibility, whether it's intelligence, that you're going to apply to distinguish humans from animals is going to exclude some humans, uh, for instance, the mentally incapable or children, and is going to include some animals such as uh, animals with higher cognitive abilities, such as uh, chimpanzees or elephants. And because of this, the reasoning is inconsistent and not waterproof. Um, and But what the, the, the Non-Human Rights Project is doing, they are claiming that the writ of habeas corpus actually aims to protect foundational values that underlie our society, natural law is more important than governing laws, and principles such as liberty and autonomy. Because why is it so important to um, not imprison persons? Because of liberty and autonomy. And they argue that uh, uh, at least animals with higher cognitive abilities are free and able to autonomously direct their lives. But I believe that the end of this has not been set. There will still be, um, I don't think it stops here at the responsibility argument yet. We mentioned the Non-Human Rights Project a couple of times, and it is fitting to introduce them properly at this stage in the podcast. They are the only civil rights organizations in the United States working through litigation, public policy advocacy, and education to secure legally recognized fundamental rights for non-human animals. Their main objective is to change the common law status of great apes, elephants, dolphins, and whales from mere things which you lack the capacity to possess any legal right to legal persons who possess such fundamental rights as bodily liberty and bodily integrity. But is it fair to say that the Non-Human Rights Project has a discriminatory approach to which animals they want to establish rights to, where intelligent animals are favored over stupid ones? Yes, thank you for that question. So, the non, because the non-human rights project um, cases now are are limited to the confines of the writ of habeas corpus, right? And the writ of habeas corpus aims to protect the autonomy and liberty from illegally captivated persons. So they say animals can make autonomous choices. They they live free and they can um, uh, autonomously direct their lives. Therefore, they should be uh, protected uh, by the writ. So I would say that they focus on animals with higher cognitive abilities, so smarter animals, 
as a strategic approach. I don't think their approach is to discriminate between um, animals with different cognitive abilities. They now decide to focus on a group on animals for strategic reasons, practical reasons. But it's not excluded if you read their submissions that the main arguments they, they invoke, such as autonomy, being autonomous or being free, could not apply to animals with lower cognitive abilities. Why not try to change the legislation surrounding animals? Why go to the courts? strategy the non-human right uh, project chooses uh, is strategic courtroom uh, liti litigation and especially if you look at the current u.s administration there is no uh, political uh, support to adopt uh, a legislative act that grants rights to animals of course you can work on on, on broadening support there if you go via the um, if the non-human rights project also goes via the courts because essentially you'll just have to find one judge to follow your line of reasoning, to start breaking the legal wall that exists between animals and humans. So from that perspective, it's just the most pragmatic thing to do. Do you think there are any jurisdictions the EU could learn from regarding animal protection practices? Um, so the EU is known or at uh, claims to be a front runner um, on uh, promoting animal welfare. We have an extensive body of law on the protection of animals on the farm during transport and slaughter. So on the, on the matter of the development of um, legislation, I think we are already a front runner. And I would, I'm pretty much convinced it's the same in the applications of new technologies uh, within farms. Um, we, we, are also, um, um, we also have up-to-date uh, technology. So what we can learn from um, other jurisdictions is that I've noticed that in terms of granting rights to the environment or nature, um, a lot has been moving and shifting. So in the United States, in Oceania, in New Zealand, in Asia, so in India, um, but nothing has been happening in the European Union outside of uh, the, the academic or more theoretical context. And um, of course, because the, the writ of habeas corpus is, a, is, a, is, a, is an action under common law, so we cannot really apply it in the continental civil law context. So, so that's not, there is no room there to, to improve rights to nature or animals. And in the Indian context, uh, the judgment um, really relied on, on spiritual notions on human nature relationship, what is deemed so, uh, inappropriate is a word I would use in, in the European context. So it will be interesting to see how this shift towards granting increased rights to humans and animals will play out in a European context, because so far we haven't seen any movement here on that matter, which to me um, is interesting, seeing that other continents are moving and we are claiming to be that moral authority. The Indian Supreme Court recognized the artificiality of rights and concluded that they should not necessarily have a homocentric nature. It is time that Europe considers assigning rights out of morality instead of having it be connected to human needs. The consequences of this development might seem immense. What will happen to the pharmaceutical industry, the meat industry, and scientific development in general? It is currently a widespread narrative that humans have some magical spark that makes their lives intrinsically so much more valuable than all other life forms. However, this narrative is changing. Most recently, on the 9th of May, an associate judge of the New York Highest Court issued an opinion in the cases of the chimpanzees Tommy and Kiko litigated by the Non-Human Rights Project. We quote, 
To treat a chimpanzee as if he or she had no right to liberty protected by the habeas corpus is to the regard the chimpanzee as entirely lacking independent worth, a mere resource for human use, a thing, the value of which exists exclusively in its usefulness to others. Instead, we should consider whether a chimpanzee is an individual with inherent value who has the right to be treated with respect. The issue, whether a non-human animal has a fundamental right to liberty protected by the habeas corpus, is profound and far-reaching. It speaks to our relationship with all life around us. Ultimately, we will not be able to ignore it. While it may be arguable that a chimpanzee is not a person, there is no doubt that it is not merely a thing. The UN report for the meat industry is set to increase its production from processing 56 billion animals per year to 112 billion by 2050. Animal exploitation cannot be challenged by animal welfare legislation alone. We need something else. We need to change. This episode of Nomos Vaughan was produced by Maria Damanilsen and Lilia Nguyen. We would like to thank Mr. Pascal Durand, Ms. Jennifer Dubois and the ESA for their collaboration. We would also like to thank the Global Law Program at Silvic University for supporting Nomos Vaughan. You can find more episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page and our website at www.nomosphone.com. Thank you for joining us and until next time.